Welcome to Uprooted, a podcast from IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. I'm Johan Cabert. Each episode of Uprooted follows a story that connects the dots of agriculture and trade. What might seem obscure and technical on the surface actually impacts every aspect of our daily lives. We want to unearth the fascinating hidden stories that trace their roots back to policy. If you like what you hear, check out the IATP website for more on recent events, webinars, papers, and policy. Today, we're looking at trade through a different lens, beer. The beverage is part of a booming industry across the United States and is in the throes of a craft brewing renaissance. What role did NAFTA play in that, and how has it impacted brewers, beer aficionados, and the globe? Fermenting will be front and center. You're listening to Uprooted. Like many people, some members of the IATP staff enjoy sipping a cold one with friends on a hot summer day, or trying the latest innovation at a local brewery. We thought we should ask some experts for a better understanding of the centuries-old drink. Who might that be? Well, just the vice president of the International Beeronomics Society. I'm Michael McCullough. I'm an associate professor at California Polytechnic State University. My areas of specialty are beer, the economics of beer, and wine. Professor McCullough also serves on the board of the Beeronomics Society. From the name, you can probably guess that they study the economics of beer. All in all, his titles and line of work can induce a fair bit of jealousy. Despite getting to drink pale ale for research, talking with Professor McCullough is incredibly informative. He told me how beer is more than just a fad picked up by hipsters. Beer is a big thing. and It's always been a part of pretty much every civilization since people moved from being hunter-gatherers into, into agrarian civilizations. And so it's historically, I think, very, very interesting. Um, the first written laws were about beer and trade. The, most societies or governments have funded themselves through beer taxation. So it's, So it's a lot of fun to think about both currently and historically. Our other beer expert. My name is William Bosquist. I wrote a book called um, The Brewer's Tale, A History of the World According to Beer. Mr. Bostwick is also a beer critic for the Wall Street Journal and has written about various arcane and engrossing beer traditions in publications like Bloomberg and GQ. Just to warn you, The audio from this interview had a fair amount of background noise, which can make it a little difficult to hear at times. Beer has been around since humans have been around, and so you could say it's always been uh, an integral part of of human existence, but um, surely it is at a point now where uh, it's a little bit more than just integral. Dare I say, trendy. Given its current place in the zeitgeist, beer has an even more important role in culture and politics, and that transfers over to trade too. Every six-pack you buy is like the butterfly effect, slowly rippling out into the economy and in turn being impacted by policy and regulations from the top down. Every ingredient in a brew, every material in a can or shipping container 
depends on the state of trade. The price and availability of beer swings with factors determined by the international market. Given all that, without trade, where would hipsters be? They'd just swirl their specially waxed mustaches and drink purified water. Where's the irony in that? Professor McCullough says that in order to truly understand the extent of the integration of the beer industry between Mexico and the United States, you've got to hit the history books. Prohibition in the United States, I think, was, was the real beginning of the Mexican beer industry because you had a lot of brewers that were now out of jobs in the United States, and Mexico was very open and, and, um, and ready to start industrializing, and a lot of them moved down there. And so you've got the start of the Modelo Brewery in Mexico City, which is right right during the middle of Prohibition. And so I think it's important to note that you can't really talk about the two industries as, as completely separate because they're not separate. They're, they're definitely dependent on each other. Our resident professional beer critic agreed. Uh, if we're talking about, you know, uh, uh, Corona and uh, Negro Modelo, and I mean, those are uh, <clears throat> breweries that were started by the same wave of um, German brewers who gave us Budweiser and Miller and Coors, um, and they're pretty much identical beers. As time progressed, you saw consolidation and the rise of conglomerates in both countries. And from prohibition in the U.S. and then going through it, and then and they've experienced very very similar changes since prohibition that we did in the United States with major consolidation into a couple of you know one or two major breweries, national breweries, which is where they're at now. Then NAFTA entered into the picture. NAFTA had profound impacts on every aspect of society that came in contact with trade. Within the beer industry, that connection was even more obvious. I was pulling up uh, uh, Brewer's Almanac numbers, and if you look at the, the growth in imports from Mexico starting in 1994, it's pretty well straight-line growth. It's, it's quite fast, and a lot of that's going to be NAFTA. I mean, the ways that... Uh, that that NAFTA impacts um, something like beer is that is that beer is an undeniable success story of trade for Mexico with the United States. It, exports went up dramatically, um, partly as a result of, of NAFTA. Uh, tariffs came down in the United States. More exports could come in. Professor Timothy Wise is a senior researcher at Tufts University and the Small Planet Institute. Professor Wise doesn't deny that NAFTA helped the U.S. beer industry economically, but he made it clear that the deal was one-sided in that respect. It wasn't a good example of how trade ideally works, equitably for all sides. I was, several years ago, invited to speak at the annual um, gathering of Mexico's largest agricultural uh, organization. And, um, and I ended up at a... At a um, uh, cocktail party um, before before the next day's session that I would speak at, um, talking to the U.S. attaché from the USDA, and he took offense when I said that Mexico had been running a 
trade deficit in agriculture and said, no, we're going to run a surplus. And and there's been this debate all along in Mexico. Uh, there's been a sort of sleight of hand in the statistics that I'm, I was very aware of. And I said, oh, do you mean the so-called agri-food trade balance, the trade deficit that includes things like beer and tequila as agricultural exports from Mexico? And he said, well, of course. And, and I said, well, exactly how are those agricultural exports? He goes, well, that's what they're made from. And it's a great, it's a great success story for Mexico because Mexico has dramatically increased its exports of, um, of beer to the United States. And the United States has dramatically increased its exports of malt to make, it, to make that beer in Mexico. And I said, well, then how is it an agricultural export for Mexico if the malt is coming from the U.S.? And he kind of didn't have much to say to that. And that's actually the big contradiction of, uh, it summed up for me what's, what's wrong with NAFTA for Mexico and for agriculture in Mexico is Mexico's had this idea that just exporting more goods is the goal. Um, but it, lose sight, sight, it loses sight of the fact that um, it's only good if it's actually stimulating economic activity in Mexico. Professor McCullough, the economist, agrees about the statistics. Yeah, that's, 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 that's definitely true. If you're, so let's say you, I was reporting what agricultural exports are, and, I'm, and beer is a main part of that. And the ingredients for beer are all primarily imported. It's, that's, that's definitely skewing what things might look like. Most of, I don't know exact percentage, but most of the, the malting barley comes from, the malt comes from the United States for Mexican beer. So you have the raw inputs coming out of the United States, down to Mexico, and then value added in Mexico in terms of brewing and then back up to the United States. So it's, so it's, a, it's a very interesting trade. There's nothing agricultural about beer exports um, uh, from Mexico to the United States. And, um, and it shows in the agricultural sector in Mexico, which has suffered dramatically under, under NAFTA. Unfortunately, while many of the statistics make it look like NAFTA has been a boon to the industry, those figures fail to fully present the human cost of NAFTA. The reality is that even if you look at GDP growth rates, Mexico has been not among the leaders in Latin America. And actually, countries that didn't sign on to trade agreements like this have had higher growth rates. Um, so even the growth rates don't look good. But it's certainly true that they haven't translated into into many benefits for Mexico's people. Um, the, most, the most telling statistic to me about... Um, about NAFTA's failure for Mexico is that what Mexico needed most from NAFTA was jobs. They had a lot of young people entering the workforce. Um, the economy was kind of stagnant. So it, Mexico has not created the jobs. I, I've done a lot of work with, uh, with Mexican farm organizations who have fought NAFTA from the beginning, have um, suffered um, under it for for years and have been and are now um, with the possibility of a, um, of a renegotiation, um, fighting to have it um, 
have a serious renegotiation that goes to the some of the root causes of the problems with NAFTA. I don't think people in the United States really appreciate just how dire um, NAFTA was for Mexican producers. Professor McCullough agrees that NAFTA has forced Mexican farmers into changing. If I can get cheaper barley in, cheaper malt in uh, out of the United States, it's, that's going to force the local farmers to go into doing something different and, 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 and looking at raising different inputs. It's, um, that's absolutely true. Absolutely true. He points out that there are still benefits to American consumers because of trade. We've seen a lot more variety, which I think is really neat. The ability for, for a small Belgian uh, a monastic brewery to sell in the United States is pretty neat. You know, for, for, to, be able to, to be able to get access to these types of goods that you, you know, we never used to be able to get access to. But that international variety is due to free trade agreements and to the increasing centralization of the beer industry. Now, from an access point for, for companies, now the ability for someone like uh, uh, InBev to acquire a company like Anheuser-Busch and then for them to, to, to acquire SABs, uh, uh, free trade has definitely played a big part of that. Since NAFTA was passed, the beer industry has been dominated by the merger of these huge international conglomerates. I mean, we can say, and go back to anything, you know, prices would be higher before if, uh, if some of these barriers to trade were up. Um, would they not have been able to do it? I, I don't, I think that's, that would be, you know, a bit of a stretch. It would just be a little bit more expensive. It might have been a little bit slower um, without the pre-trade agreements. Overall, Professor McCullough says that the conglomeration is mainly due to economies of scale. Companies can make more of a profit when they grow, so they expand and acquire their competition. Given that, globalization, through free trade agreements, allows for the most extreme forms of corporate profiteering and growth. Timothy Wise also cites NAFTA as one of the causes of globalization. However, he blames that process for hurting American consumers. From working in Mexico in the 90s, I was introduced to Negro Modelo, uh, one of their beer exports. Um, I, I loved it and found that when I was back in, in Boston, the discount liquor store nearby um, actually sold it. And it was the best uh, relatively cheap dark beer on the market that I could find. I could get a case for $20. And that was that was my main beer here. But um, the changes in the beer industry that you're talking about included a lot of mergers and acquisitions. Um, and I wasn't following it closely, but all of a sudden, those cheap the cheap beer in my local liquor store, my Negro Modelo, uh, went up dramatically in price. And I have six seven dollars a case more with with no apparent cause. And when I went back and looked at it, it turned out that Anheuser-Busch had bought the Modelo company and then the Belgian beer maker InBev had taken over Anheuser-Busch. And now AB InBev is the owner of the Modelo company, which uh, produces Corona and um, Negro Modelo and other uh, Mexican beers. The, the idea that NAFTA would bring cheaper products to the United States, in this case, is it's the diametric opposite. Um, 
by allowing the monopolization of the beer industries, um, the two conglomerates in Mexico having been taken over by by larger multinational conglomerates, um, they can control prices. And they decided that Negro Modelo was going to be their premium export, not one of their lower priced exports. Corona was no longer going to be allowed to compete with and undercut Budweiser and other cheaper beers. And so the prices on all of them went up. Um, so typical Ameri- <laughs> we typical Americans who drink and like Mexican beer saw price increases from uh, from these changes and uh, the rise in imports under NAFTA, um, not price decreases. With renegotiation on the table, Professor Wise points out what a better NAFTA would look like. What NAFTA should have been doing was was pushing for and helping Mexico implement uh, uh, a much more robust set of environmental and labor protections to improve labor and working conditions, wages, um, uh, environmental enforcement, uh, and the like. And of course, all the economic incentives go in the opposite direction. It wanted the jobs. The jobs were based on uh, on weak enforcement of, of labor and environmental protections, and um, that's what Mexico got. So, um, but but what's I think is striking about the you know NAFTA now more than twenty years on um, is that is that they didn't even really get the jobs. Um, you know the I've said that Mexico should enter the negotiations aggressively saying that they want to put Mexico first, just like Trump wants to put the U.S. first, um, that they should make Mexico great again, just like Trump wants to make the U.S. great again. With every policy, there are clear winners and losers. Trade agreements require a bit of give-and-take from all sides. With such important issues on the line, however, it's essential that in the long list of pros and cons, we don't lose track of what really matters. I, I think with any policy, right, with any policy, we have to be very clear on what our intentions are and where we want this particular redistribution of wealth, right? Because that's ultimately what happens, right? If we have protectionist policy and we you know, increase import tariffs and we're, we're trying to protect our local economy, that's, that, if that's the particular goal, then we need to have that in the back of our mind when we go through it. If we want to raise the value of agriculture across you know, North America, then that's, that's that particular goal. And you know, different policies have different impacts on that. Who are we really looking out for and what is our, our goal of it? If our goal is to have cheaper food for Americans, then I, it's pretty tough to see that NAFTA didn't help do that, right? Because because it lowered the cost of inputs. I mean, at the end of the end of the day, that that means lower prices for inputs. It means it's harder for growers to to make ends meet if they're facing lower prices for their outputs. And so, so yeah, you might have some of that consolidation. And whether that's right or wrong, it really depends on what your intentions are, right? Um, so yeah, it's that's a tough one. It's a tough one. I, I don't think anyone can come in and say, you know, as a whole, this this large trade policy is good or bad because you really have to think about for whom, 
with NAFTA renegotiation occurring, that's more true than ever. There's no reason to assume that the decisions made on NAFTA are the only way forward. As economists and activists approach the renegotiation process, keeping sight of our goals and priorities is how we can create a future where good trade supports the kind of societies we want to see and want to live in. Uprooted is produced, written, and edited by Colleen Borgendale and Johan Cavert. Editing by Josh Wise, Karen Hansen-Kuhn, and Lacey Carlson. With help from the rest of the IATP staff. Website and graphic design by Colleen Borgendale. Special thanks this episode to Professor McCullough, Mr. Bostwick, and Professor Timothy Wise. Our theme music is edited from and Blessings by the Orchestral Movement of 1932 under Creative Commons License BYSA 2.5. Other music used in the episode is listed on our website. For more information, go to the IATP website, www.iatp.org, follow us on Facebook, or email us at uprootedpodcast@iatp.org. at iatp.org. And we want to hear from you. Thanks for listening.